welcome. Just uh, so acutely aware of the presence of God and, 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 and the move of the Spirit, even as we've been worshiping. And so really excited about what God has in store for us through His Word. And uh, if you're new with us, we just want to say, like Brad said in the beginning, welcome. It is exciting to be together. We're, our, we're in the book of Genesis. We've been going through... Um, through the book of Genesis in a series, and uh, our, our title, our little catch line is, where faith and life intersect. And so we're continuing with that series this morning. We're in, we're in chapter 17, and uh, really excited because I feel like God has got something really encouraging on His heart for us this evening. And this evening, I trust that as we, as we sit under His Word, as we minister to one another later, as we go into time of communion, that we'll walk out of here knowing that we've met with the Lord, and we'll be encouraged to live the lives God has called us to live in the coming week and the weeks that lie ahead. So uh, we're in chapter 17. We're not going to go straight in there. I want to ask you a question first. And, uh, and I asked the question at the 8, the 10, and at Musenberg, and they all gave me an answer, so no pressure. All right. So often when we ask a question that's sort of like taken as rhetorical, it's not. I actually want you to answer. Um, when you think about power <coughs> or powerful, what do you think of? And don't joke and say Eskim, right? Because that's what they said. That's what they said at the 10. Right. <coughs> what? Responsibility. Right. Power. Powerful. What comes to mind? Fire. Fire. Nuclear power. Anything else? Come, guys. Hey, what's that? Lightning. Is that what's right? Right. Lightning. Oh, up there. Okay. Lightning. Yeah. James. Authority. A waterfall. Okay. What's that? Dominion, right there. There really are a lot of things that we could use the word powerful to describe. What comes to my mind is like a bulldozer, right? Um, uh, an atomic bomb is one of those things. Uh, because we're in church, we've got to say our God is powerful, right? God is powerful. Everyone wanted to say that, but didn't want to play the Jesus card, right? It's okay to do that. But here's the thing. When I ask people this, I ask them outside of and while I was preparing the message, not one person said me. Not as in Roland, but me, myself. I think about myself as powerful. And, and I think we are inherently either too proud to admit that actually the Christian life is meant to be a life filled with power and we're not living it, or we're too humble or too, I would say, insecure to acknowledge that actually the Christian life is meant to be the most powerful life lived by anybody on this planet. And that's not because we're anything great, but that's because our God is great, right? The Christian life is a life supposed to be a life filled with power, supplied by God, no load shedding spiritually, right? <laughs> we're supposed to be spirit-filled and living the most powerful lives amongst anybody else or any other peoples of this earth for the glory of God. But very seldom do we step into that place. Very seldom do we acknowledge that. And as a result, very seldom are God's people living in the power that God has given them to live out their lives in. And so we're not seeing the breakthrough that I believe we can be seeing for the kingdom of God. And that's not because our God is deficient. It's because we just haven't got it yet, I don't think. There are, there are many Christians who are living powerful lives. And I think there are a lot of people in our church but I think there's more. I think there's more. I think there's always more to be stepping into. And I think, and here's what I really believe, not just think, I know God wants to encourage you this evening so that you can step out of this building and go live lives of power for the glory of his name in, in ways that you haven't experienced before. And so as we read chapter 17, we're going to be unpacking five principles 
that we can apply to our lives that will help us to experience the power of God in our lives. That's the sermon title. And when we read this passage, you'll see God for the very first time introduces himself to Abram. It's not Abraham yet, he's Abram. He introduces himself to Abram as El Shaddai. That's the very first time in Scripture that that word is used. God uses that, that title to introduce himself to Abram. He goes, I am El Shaddai, and I'm introducing myself to you, and I want to establish a covenant with you. And there's some debate over the word Shaddai. El means God. It's a Hebrew word for God. And then Shaddai, some people, some theologians say it stands for it's like a solid mountain, a really powerful mountain, strong mountain. It refers to God's power. Others say that it refers to um, a woman and as she's feeding her baby and just nourishing the baby. So it speaks about the nourishment that God brings and, and the provision that God brings. But regardless of what it means, it doesn't matter where you land, this word El Shaddai, as God reveals himself to Abram, really just represents and stands for that all-powerful, all-sufficient God that's able to do anything and everything and meet every need that his people could ever have. And I think as we unpack this this evening, I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit will come and minister to us and we get excited about what it means to be Christians again. I really feel like that's what God wants to do because there's supposed to be a joy that comes with our salvation. And there's supposed to be an excitement that comes with knowing that we're sons and daughters of God. There's supposed to be a sense of the impossible that we're called to do and know that it's impossible for us, but possible for God. And so we're excited about it and we feel and we know the presence and the power of God. And we're supposed to be experiencing that. I'm going to trust that God would give that to us this evening. Right, so let's read together. It's quite a chunk. We're going to read and, uh, and then we'll get into... We'll get into the meat of what it is that God has for us this evening. Chapter 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. This is the word El Shaddai. I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. But your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into a nation, or into nations, and the kings and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. For an everlasting possession, I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. 
I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Huge portion of scripture. You could preach a whole series on that alone. But the real question I want to ask about that passage and for us this evening is what five principles can we take out of that passage that would teach us to live and to experience, to live in and to experience the power of God in our lives daily. The first principle uh, it comes from verses one and two. But the principle won't come up yet. We're going to get there. I'm going to leave you guessing to see if you can figure it out. Right? But the Lord appears to Abraham when he is 99 years old. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't heard of many 99-year-old fathers who have just had a newborn baby arrive lately. Okay? If you have, that would be amazing. But even back in Abraham's time, in, in ancient Hebrew times, that was old. That was like getting on. I'd love to live to 100, but to father another child at 100? But even, even then, it was a little bit as ridiculous as it sounds now. And so when God comes to Abraham, he comes with this promise, this covenant, this, 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 this idea of making him into nations at a time when it seemed impossible that that would happen. And so Abraham laughs to himself. And here's the, here's the amazing thing. A lot of people think that Abraham disbelieved God or didn't believe him. But if you know the story, you'll know that when Sarah heard it, she laughed and God rebuked her. But when Abraham laughs, God doesn't rebuke him because Abraham, even in his laughing, still believes God. Still believes God, that God can fulfill this impossible promise. It was like big word, incredulous. It was just unbelievable, yet Abraham believes. And we know in Romans chapter 4, it says, and Abraham believed God, and so it was accredited to him as righteousness. But Abraham believed God, and so when God comes with this impossible scenario, at 100 years old, you're going to be a father, and your wife at 90 years old, she's going to become a wife. I mean, a mom, right? Hopefully a wife. She's going to remain your wife and become a mom. <laughs> I, hate that, I hate that this is recorded, right? <clears throat> you can never live it down. But you're going to become a mother at 90 years old. And Abraham teaches us this thing, that sometimes, and a lot of the times, God calls us into the impossible and establishes for us the impossible. And we can battle to believe it, yet at the same time, believe it. And because of that, Abraham sees the fulfillment of the promise of God in his life. And that's principle number one. To experience God's power, never, ever discount God's ability to achieve the impossible. Never do that. I think we live in a time and, and, a, and a day and an age where we, we doubt God. We doubt God's ability to change things and to work things for His glory and to make impossible things come about and to change things that we think are impossible to change. We doubt God. And I think because of that, we don't experience in our personal lives and corporately as much of the kingdom as I believe is in store for us to experience. 
We ask questions like, how can God fix this situation? How can God really use me to do that? That is just beyond possible. How can God change this country and bring reconciliation? How can God change my family? How can he change my heart? How is it possible that someone like that could ever come to know Jesus? How can he turn this around? And, and we ask ourselves these questions, but we're not asking ourselves this. We're actually, we're actually making a statement. We, we're, we're making an, an indictment against God. And, and, and we're showing our colors when it comes to our faith in this God that we profess to know and to love. We admit that God created the heavens and the earth. And when he spoke, all of creation came into being. And when he comes back, the mountains are going to melt like wax before him. Yet we think that some things are still impossible for God to achieve. But Abraham, when he hears this impossible promise, he believes God. And when we start to doubt God and we, and, we, and we undermine his ability in our lives to do the impossible, one of two things happens. We either just give up and we go, this is not possible, and we stop praying, we stop pressing in, we stop seeking God, and then we never do see breakthrough. Or we pray, but we pray faithlessly, and we just resign ourselves to accept the status quo, and we just meander along. A sort of mediocre prayer life, not really trusting, but feeling guilty that we're not praying, so we pray anyway, but there's no real substance to our prayer or faith to our prayer. And I think God wants to remind us tonight again that we need to be trusting Him as the God of the impossible, and the God who calls things that are not as if they are. We need to be those people. We need to be the mouthpiece and the voice for God in this day and age where people are so broken and so lost. We need to see God working powerfully through his people again, and his people need to get hold of that idea and that truth that God is a miracle-working God. He does the impossible. It doesn't mean to say that God doesn't work in the mundane. God is always working. He works in the small things and in the big things, but often he brings glory to his name through working through the impossible and making impossible things possible. Jesus was speaking to his disciples and he was speaking to them about the impossibility of a rich man coming to salvation. And he, his disciples get a little bit jaded and they're like, oh, well, then who can actually be saved, Jesus? Right? If it's as impossible to be saved as it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, who can be saved? And then Jesus, as was common to him, answers in this most profound way. He says, what is impossible for man is possible with God. And Jesus establishes this principle. Everything you're called to do in the kingdom is impossible for you to do. It should be. Because it's God work. It's kingdom work. But it is possible for you to be part of that because God in you empowers you to do that. He is God of the impossible. What is impossible for you is not impossible for him, and God will do it for his glory. We've just got to believe him. And you can work through your doubts and you can work through your fear, but don't undermine God's ability to use you to do the impossible. In Romans chapter 4, verse 17, quoting Genesis 17, Paul says this, as it is written, and here's a quote from chapter 17, I have made you the father of many nations. That's God speaking to Abraham. And then Paul says this, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. What is your impossible situation? What is it that you believe God can't do? What is it that you believe God can never turn around or change or fix or somehow work for his glory? 
What is it that you believe God can't use you to do? I think tonight we need to be encouraged and you need to hear this from the Lord. God wants to use you. He will use you, but it requires you believing him. It requires you believing him and knowing that he's the God who can change things that to you seem unchangeable or immovable. God just says a faith as small as a mustard seed and you can move mountains. That's principle number one. Principle number two also comes from verses one and two. God speaking to Abraham, he gives him this, this amazing promise. He says, when you're 99 years old, you're going you're to be a father. He says this, but I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai, and you need to walk before me blamelessly. You need to walk blamelessly before me. Which is, to say this, to experience God's power, principle number two, we must walk blamelessly before the Lord. A lot of people misunderstand this. And you get people who go to two different extremes. On the one extreme, they go, well, that means sinlessly. And so we strive to, to live this sinful life, sinless life in, in, in our own power, right? We try to be sinless, and we strive, and we strive, and we strive, and we strive, and we end up like the Galatians. We become self-righteous and proud, and, 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 and we think that we can earn God's salvation. We think that we can earn His favor. We get caught up in this legalistic cycle of works. And then the other side, the, the other extreme left is become liberal. And you get people who, who just don't care because it's grace. And so I can just do what I want to do because God has paid the price anyway and try to marry the idea of loving God with loving the world. And then Jesus speaks to you like he spoke to the church in Laodicea. And he says, oh man, I wish you were either this really cold frappe on a hot summer's day or a really nice hot cup of coffee on a winter's evening. But somehow you're not either of those. You're this lukewarm mix. And because of that, I'm going to vomit you out my mouth. And so you get the foolish people who are trying to work things out and live sinlessly in their own power. And you get foolish people who think that they can abuse the grace of God. And neither of those are living blamelessly before the Lord. What this word means is to be wholeheartedly devoted to. When God says to Abraham, walk blamelessly before me, it was you need to have one intent, and that is to serve me. It means that you need to be wholly devoted to. At the epicenter of your life needs to be me and the worship of me, and anything that's in the middle of your life needs to be removed, whether that's family, whether that's friends, whether it's your job, whether it's a desire for security and money, whether it's for greener pastures, whatever it is that's at the center of your life needs to be removed, and the worship of God needs to be replaced right there. God says to Abraham, if you're going to be experiencing this, if you're going to be living out this promise that I'm going to give to you and that I'm going to enable you to live out in your life, you need to be walking blamelessly before me. You walk blamelessly before me, I'll bless you. 2 Chronicles chapter 16 says this, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose hearts are blameless toward him. David writes in the psalm, he says, if I cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And I think there's a place where we need to realize just how serious our sin is when it comes to experiencing the presence and the power of God in our lives. I don't know if you remember the story of Achan when God's people were led into the promised land. They came up against a city called Ai. And what had happened was a guy named Achan and his family had taken stuff that God said they shouldn't have taken and they'd hidden it. And no one else knew about this, and God's people go up against the city of Ai, one of the least fortified cities in the promised land, and they get destroyed. God's people get beaten. People die and lose their lives, and then Joshua goes and he laments before the Lord, 
And God comes to me and says, get up out of the, get up out of the dust. Dust your face off. Deal with the sin in the camp and then move on. And through a process of elimination, what happens was God reveals to all of Israel and to the leaders of Israel that Achan and his family had taken some stuff, some livestock and some jewels and all that stuff. And then God says, stone them. And his whole family, Achan and his whole family, wife, Achan, his children, everything get destroyed. And then God says, now go. And then they have victory against the city of Ai. Here's what I want you to know. In your own life, don't fool God. You know when there's habitual sin in your life and you are entertaining ungodliness. I think we need to come back to a place where we walk with fear and trembling before an almighty God who created the heavens and the earth, who in one split second could let go and stop sustaining everything and everything disintegrates, yet still gave himself for us, yet still sacrificed himself for us so that we can live freely and in relationship with him. We stop kidding ourselves and pretending like we can earn his favor or that somehow we can marry the world and the grace of God and be okay with God. We need to come back to a place of reverence where we are humbly submitting ourselves and repenting before the Lord. And one of the words that's going to come to my Karen's going to bring it was about people that I feel need to repent but are stuck in this place where they can't. And the encouragement tonight is going to come to you through Karen as she shares what God has got for us to hear. Hi. So as we were worshiping, the Lord just spoke to me that he is faithful to forgive and he is faithful to restore. And I really just sensed that there was one or more people that just really needed to know that. And the faithfulness is not just something he does, it's something he is. It's part of his character. That uh, if you've taken a wrong turn, I think there, there are people here that may be taken a wrong turn and are feeling like it's beyond hope, that there is no restoration, there is no way back. Mm. And that is just not the truth. Our God is faithful to forgive and he is faithful to restore. Amen. All we need to do is come to him with humble hearts and just say, God, this is it. This is the way it is. This is what happened. And he will be faithful to forgive and faithful to restore. Amen. I think that's really important for us tonight because often we can speak about sin and feel so condemned and ashamed. We all mess up. But you need to understand that God wants you to bring that before him and to deal with it and to repent of that stuff. Why? Because you don't sin in a vacuum. Your sin affects and permeates every other part of your life. Just because you sin at home doesn't mean that it doesn't affect the workplace or the school or the family. And you also bring that into the family of God and into the church environment. And corporately, we can lack an experience of God because of sin that people are carrying. So I think we need to take it seriously and go, God is a forgiving God. Let me be unashamed of this thing and come before him, knowing that he sees everything already. And if there's anybody here that looks down on somebody for repenting for sin, then there's some repentance you need to be doing yourself. And so there's freedom to respond tonight to God. If that was for you, it is for all of us, but if that was specifically for you, don't be ashamed and don't be afraid. We're going to go into a ministry time at the end of the message. And I want to encourage you to come before the Lord and repent of that stuff. And you're going to step into freedom and breakthrough and experience the power of God. It could be that one thing that is stopping you from walking in the power of God in your life. The next, the next principle comes from uh, verses 5, 6, and 15, and 16. 
I'm not going to read all of it, but basically it's where God renames Abraham or Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. Now in the Western world, we've got names, obviously, and I spoke about this a little bit during Christmas time, right? But in the Western culture, we very seldom name people according to the meaning of our names. So all of our names have got meaning, most of us. But I, I don't know if many people know the meaning of their names. I love asking people, what is the meaning of your name? People are like, oh, I don't really know. And so then I Google it. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's not very cool, right? So I'm like, oh, you should check that out later yourself, right? Um, <clears throat> but, but, but there are people in our culture who do name, uh, and, and, and in our country, we're part of cultures who do name people according to the meaning of their name. So I grew up in the Eastern Cape and was pretty much immersed in the Kosa culture. And I've got a friend named Siavoya, right, which is Kosa for we are happy. Right, it's got, a, got someone that I know called Bongani, which is Zulu for be grateful. And then Tandiwe is a closer name for beloved. My son, David, and Abigail were, were names given to us by God, and we were praying, God, give us a name with strong meaning. And David means beloved, and Abigail means the father's joy. So we name our children that, and, and God, like biblically speaking, and ancient Hebrews as well, they were big into names and big into the meaning of names. And so God often renamed people because their purpose and their destiny was going to change. And, and, and the names weren't just cool-sounding names. They had meaning. They were named those names for, for the specific purpose of changing the meaning, <coughs> which often spoke to what God had in store for them or who they were as people. And granted, not everybody lives up to the awesome meaning of their name if they have a great one. But God was big into changing names. And I think, and this is just my personal opinion, I think it's because when you speak someone's name, you're speaking that meaning over them. Right? So God changes Abraham's name to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah because the meaning is different. And it speaks to God's sovereignty to redirect someone's life and move in a different direction. And was reminded to them constantly that God is the one who does this. But there's something else to the name change that doesn't necessarily meet the eye straight away. And it's something that um, a theologian by James Boyce pointed out in his commentary. He said, it wouldn't have stood out to us because we're not part of the ancient Hebrew culture. But he says that the breathy sound, the, the ha, Abraham and Sarah, would have stood out to ancient Hebrews because that was, it was a vowel, phonetic sound that was given to um, the Spirit of God. It was a reference to the Spirit of God. It was the, the ha sound, or, and it referred to the ruach of God, the Spirit of God. And so when God renames Abraham and Sarah, He puts directly into, their middle, into the middle of their names a reference to the Spirit of God. And so when you speak their names, you're reminded constantly that the Spirit of God is at work. That the Spirit of God was the one who was at work when Sarah fell pregnant. That is the Spirit of God who empowers them and empowers us and enables this life that God has called us to live, to be a life that we can actually experience. The breathy sound, the, the hay sound represented the Spirit of God. It was a constant reminder to Abraham and to whoever else spoke their names that this was God at work and this was God doing what God does best, and that's make the impossible happen by the power of His Spirit, which is point number three. To experience God's power, this principle, we must continuously be filled with the Holy Spirit. Life in the kingdom is not possible. It's not kingdom living if it's not by the power of the Spirit. And often people get confused, and I want to just touch on two things quickly. 
There is a difference between Holy Spirit person and Holy Spirit power. And this was a massive epiphany for me. And it was changed the way that I thought and the way that I prayed about being filled with the power of the Spirit. See, when we're saved, God gives us the Holy Spirit. It's a promise, it's a deposit, it's a seal, it's a guarantee of things to come. The Holy Spirit, you don't get half of him or a third of him, as John said in his message a couple of weeks ago, a junior Holy Spirit. You get the whole Holy Spirit. But then there is Holy Spirit power. And when we speak about being filled again with the Holy Spirit, we're not talking about the person of the Holy Spirit pops out and then somehow comes back and then goes out and comes back. We're speaking about power leaving you and power coming back. Power leaving you and power coming back. It's an empowering of the Spirit that we speak about when we say be filled with the Spirit. And there's some scriptural precedent here for that. In Luke chapter 4, verse 1 and then verse 14, chapter 1, in chapter 4, verse 1, uh, it says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus receives the person of the Holy Spirit at his baptism. Remember, it says it came down upon him like a dove. And then it says the Holy Spirit leads Jesus out of the Jordan into the wilderness. And then after his tempting and testing and resisting of the enemy, it says in verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And it's only after this happens that Jesus begins his earthly ministry. Jesus doesn't do any miraculous stuff until he leaves the desert in the power of the Spirit. And so there's this difference between receiving the person of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit. We see this also in Luke chapter 8. It says, as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. In other words, Jesus, that's a really silly question. Everyone is touching you. You're almost dead because of how people are crushing you. What I think is funny is everybody denies it. No, it wasn't me. All right? But Jesus is asking a different question. It's not who touched me physically. It's who has touched me with faith. And I know someone has touched me, Jesus says, because look what he says after that. I know that power has gone out from me. Jesus knows power leaves him. Not the Holy Spirit person. Power leaves him. And we often see this with Jesus after long day and nights of ministry where we would go maybe grab a burger from the engine back in the day when they had the special and then go home, right? Come on, right? Back, back in the day, back in the day where they had those chicken burger specials, right? For 30 bucks for two. We'd be like, go grab a coffee, go grab the burgers, go hang out at home. Go rest, Jesus. Do something like that. But what does Jesus do? He often goes and spends a whole night in prayer. Why? Because he knows that's where the source of his power comes from, at the feet of his Father. And we miss that. And I think God has done that for a reason, to keep us coming back. You don't lose Holy Spirit person. But guys, there's this word activated. I really don't like the word activated. Okay? but I'm going to use it here. <laughs> we really need to activate our faith in the sense that we need to be stepping into a place and applying the spiritual principles to our lives where we really receive an outpouring and an infilling of the power of the Spirit. And we got to be so familiar with it that we know when it leaves us. And then we go back to the feet of Jesus and we go, Lord, give me more. 
It's like a tap that has water in the pipes, and the tap turns on and the water flows, and then it gets switched off, and it turns on and it flows and it switches off. You get the picture. Our lives need to be constantly being filled and then overflowing, filled and then overflowing. And unless we are in a place where we understand that and are seeking and asking God for that, it's not going to happen. Yes, you'll have Holy Spirit person. Yes, you're saved. But have you noticed that some Christians just are experiencing so much of the miraculous, so much more power in their lives from the Lord, and others are not, yet they do love Jesus? I think some people just don't get that. Right? So be filled with the spirits. Got some time. I'm just going to, just going to touch on point four, and then we will, I'll unpack point five as, as, as we end. Point four, I'm not going to unpack it, like I said, much. But point four was just to experience the power of God in our lives. We must have a revelation of our weakness. Now, you'll see it seems like God's obsessed with circumcision in this passage, right? Like everyone must get circumcised, this person, that person, this person. And it just seems a little bit weird. But, but God was establishing a covenant with Abraham. And circumcision, you've got to ask this question, what did it mean to God and to his people at that time? And for Abraham, it meant like a wedding ring, right? I wear this wedding ring because I'm married. It's a symbol of my marriage. It is not the marriage itself. For Abraham, the covenant that God established with him was a covenant where God had done everything and God was going to do everything. And Abraham, in his own ability, could not do this. And so circumcision stood as a sign and as a symbol of the covenant, but also a reminder to him that in his own flesh and own strength, he could never have done this. He needed to cut away the flesh and rely on the Spirit of God for this because it was only God who did this work. And we need to be reminded of our weakness as well. Remember, Abraham, Sarai, Sarai gave Hagar to Abraham because they tried to fulfill this promise that God had promised to give them uh, through other means. And so Hagar, uh, Sarah's servant, falls pregnant with Ishmael. So Abraham, in his own flesh, tried to bring this promise of God about, and he failed. And circumcision would always be a reminder to Abraham of the covenant that God had established with him and the weakness of his own flesh to achieve the things of God. And unless we recognize how weak we are in our flesh... We'll always be depending upon ourselves to achieve the things God has for us. Point number five, or principle number five. To experience the power of God, we must be others-focused. We must be others-focused. When Abraham's praying, he says this, or talking to God, when he receives the covenant from God, he says, oh, that you would bless, bless Bless Ishmael, right? And he says that not because he doubts God's promise. He believes God, but he's also not thinking about himself. He's thinking about his son Ishmael. So God, you're going to give me this stuff. You've given me so much, but I also want blessing to go to other people. The same thing we see with him in Genesis chapter 13, where he's got the pick of the land, Abraham does, but he's got his cousin Lot with him. And then he says to Lot, which he didn't technically have to do, Lot, you take the pick of the land. You choose first, and then I'll choose. And what is happening here is Abraham's been made more and more into who God wants him to be. He's learning more to trust in God and to trust in God's provision. He's growing in his faith. He's growing in godly character. And so he starts to experience more of the blessing of the Lord because of his selflessness. And God doesn't rebuke Abraham for asking to bless Ishmael. He says, I've heard you and I'll bless him. Twelve princes will come from him. And Ishmael was blessed because Abraham prayed that prayer. 
we can be so us-focused and so narcissistic and so self-centered. And we can pretend to God and try and use reverse psychology in God and go like, hey, God, if you just give me more, I will give more. The more you give me, the more I give. And the reality is this. If we're not using the little that we have, God will never bless you with more because it's a heart condition. It's a heart thing. If your heart is not already others-focused and towards others and not towards yourself, if your heart is not already let me love God and love my neighbor as I love myself, it doesn't matter how much you have, you still won't love that way. There will always be a reason for you to keep the stuff that you have to yourself. James in chapter 4, 2 to 3 says this, You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And I don't think that's all of us, but I think we do struggle with materialism in our day and age, especially in this culture. We struggle with it. We want God to bless us and to bless us and to bless us and to bless us. But as Abraham's receiving this blessing and this promise from God, his others focus. He goes, Lord, what about Ishmael? And is your prayer also tonight, God, you've blessed me so much. Thank you. I'm so grateful for what I have. But please bless my family. Bless our church. Lord, bless this nation. Let me pray for the nation. Let me pray for my neighbor. Lord, let me give away what you've given me to give away and more for the glory of your name. It says in Philippians 2, <clears throat> do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Those five principles I believe we get out of chapter 17 is quite clear. And those things, I think if we cultivate in our life, we're going to be experiencing the power of God in our lives and in our church in a way that we haven't experienced it before. And God is at work and he's going to do amazing things. And I think there's this prophetic word that's coming out from the Lord to us as a church. God is going to change this city. He's going to change our church. He's going to change this nation. But only when God's people walk in the power that they've been given to walk in. God says to Joshua, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow I do a new thing. And I think we need to consecrate ourselves and whatever that means for you. But part of that is, I think, living out these five principles, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for the word of God, being at the feet of God, loving each other, forgiving each other, repenting of our sins, and living like the exclusive people that we are. Not in an arrogant way, but in a real God-honoring way for the glory of God's name. Amen? We're going to go into a time now we're going to take communion, but really felt that this communion space was going to be a significant ministry space. And Bill's going to come share quickly what he has to share, but we're going to go into communion. The team are going to play, and here's what I want to encourage you to do. One of the most selfless acts, the most selfless act ever committed was by God when he gave.